This morning, we have been going through, in fact, since January, a series uh, basing this on uh, peace with God and going through Bruxy Cavey's or parts of Bruxy Cavey's book, End of Religion. And this is something we're going to adopt uh, going forward as part of our discipleship track, sort of like our version of the Alpha course, um, as something that we'll begin to put in a class format in the future. Uh, so we wanted to, to spend some time on it. And then we're going to, uh, in February, or rather March, we're going to jump into some real practical stuff on peace with others. So peace with God was the first two months, peace with others, practical personal peacemaking about apologies, forgiveness, reconciliation, and kind of do a deep dive into that with some application as well. Um, but before we do that, and I have just one more little commercial, two more little commercials, uh, we will have some guests. So April Yamasaki, we've been blessed to have her uh, as a guest teacher here numerous times in the last two years. Uh, she started a short series as well on relationships uh, for us, and she's going to be here next Sunday, and so she will be sharing that the second of her messages. If you didn't get the first one, you can go back and listen to that. She spoke on Philemon. Uh, and then in the first Sunday of March is our communion Sunday, and we're doing a joint service with our mother church, uh, Emmanuel Baptist, and we're going to have a Q&A and a sort of interview style with a chaplain here in Vancouver, um, Lawrence Chung, who serves with the, uh, the, the health system here, the coastal health system, and just sort of what his experiences have been during this COVID time. And uh, I think it'll be a really wonderful conversation. And so I'm excited about those two things as well. Spread the word, uh, help us get out there. And then one more, one more before I move on to the actual message. I know, hang with me. You can do it. I believe in you. This book it's a fun little thing, and I didn't tell anybody I was going to do this, so he, 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 me sneaking stuff in, um, is a book by our former pastor's wife, uh, Sigrid, Sigrid Stark, uh, on her experiences at the church that they pastored when they were in Alberta. Uh, it's called Potluck at Rabbit Hill. And if you are not familiar with rural church life and some of the joys of community in the church, this is a, a wonderful read of stories of her and uh, the, uh, Pastor Lauren, her husband's time. I'm there as well. And so I just wanted to put a shout out to that. I read it, a wonderful read. I encourage you to check it out uh, and uh, enjoy that as well. Okay, so this morning, peace with God. And this is the seventh message in this series that we've been going through. And we're going to talk about sort of the things that Jesus left behind when he ascended into heaven that we do uh, as Christians that are sort of pointing and reminding us of our inheritance that we have, that we receive both now and in the life to come in him. And I was thinking about ways to talk about these three symbols, and Bruxy uses the language subversive symbols that he... he um, does with his disciples and then leaves for all Christians who follow him afterwards in this radical, irreligious uh, message that he has left us and the life and the way of living that he's left us. My uh, parents uh, some time ago called me and my mom wanted me to know that uh, how they were going to deal with when they died, how their house was going to be disposed of, their assets to be disposed of. My the father-in-law and mother-in-law have had these similar conversations with uh, my wife and I about what happens when the time comes when they pass away and all these instructions and who has legal authority to do what and how is this all supposed to go down. Uh, Anne talked to me the other day uh, and, and asked me about, have you written a will? And, uh, and here I am, 
sort of at the beginning of the middle of life, and I, I, I don't have one because I don't own a home in Canada. I've owned homes in the States, but here, pastors' salaries and Vancouver housing do not line up. Uh, and so, uh, but, we, but we do have beneficiaries marked out on like retirement stuff and all of that kind of thing and a life insurance stuff. I say, well, I have beneficiaries and don't worry, you're at the top of the list. In fact, you are the list in most cases. So, and then of course, kids uh, inherit based on the laws as well. But I was thinking about this, sort of what Jesus left behind. And he, of course, leaves the Holy Spirit, and he is alive by the Holy Spirit as he is in that heavenly realm, that other parallel universe, uh, until he returns visibly and physically one day. And so I was thinking about this idea of inheritance. What did he leave behind? Um, So let's read a a text today, and then we're going to jump in and talk about these three symbols of the kingdom of God Uh, subversive symbols, the inheritance markers that Jesus leaves us. So I'm going to read today from Acts. Uh, We're going to read Acts chapter 8, verse 26, uh, and then we're going to uh, look at one story and then dig into these three things and just spend a little time with it. So join with me. Here we go, Acts 6, starting in verse 26. Then the angel of the Lord said to Philip, get up and go south on the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert road. So he got up and went, and there he met an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasury. He had come to Jerusalem to worship. There's a whole backstory here about a connection between Ethiopia and Judaism and the first Christians in Africa as well. Verse 28, as he was returning home, sitting in his chariot, reading the prophet Isaiah, Then the Spirit of the Lord said to Philip, go over to this chariot. So Philip, who was traveling down the road as well, ran up to it and heard this man reading from the prophet Isaiah. And he asked him, do you understand what you're reading? And the man replied, how in the world can I unless someone guides me? Reading from the Hebrew prophets. And so he invited Philip to come up and sit with him which would have been quite an honor given this man's responsibility and rank within the kingdom in Ethiopia. Now the passage of scripture the man was reading was like this. He was led like a sheep to slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In humiliation, justice was taken from him. Who can describe his posterity, his offspring? For his life was taken away from the earth. Then the eunuch said to Philip, please tell me, who is the prophet saying this about, himself or someone else? So Philip started speaking and beginning with this scripture, proclaimed the good news about Jesus to him. That the Christians read into the, what we call now Old Testament, they saw Christ in it. Now verse 36, now as they were going along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, look, here's water, what is to stop me from being baptized? So he ordered the chariot to stop, and both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him anymore, but went on his way rejoicing. Let's pray and dig into the three symbols. Lord, thank you for your wonderful work in our midst. Thank you that your grace moves and flows and empowers that the Spirit of God is the very flame of love that sets this whole thing on fire with passion and purpose and direction centered on Jesus. And so, Lord, I am man, I am a saint and sinner in process like everyone else. 
And I know I can't change anyone's hearts, but Lord, I know that you can, by the foolishness of preaching as you've been doing for 2,000 years, and just as you directed Philip today, I pray that you direct these words to the places in hearts and minds they need to go to accomplish what you desire to have accomplished today by the power of your word proclaimed and the living word, Jesus, who is present with us when we gather. So Lord, do it. We yield to you in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Amen. So there are three symbols that we want to talk about today that Jesus leaves behind, subversive symbols. The first one is water baptism. Say it with me so I at least know you're trying to be awake, and if you're in this room as well, water baptism. Symbol number one is water baptism. This baptism, of course, within Judaism, there were practices, religious practices with water. There was mikvahs that are still done in certain communities of this idea of a ritual washing with water or washing one's hands. And within Islam, we see the same idea of ritual washing to sort of symbolize and enact this idea of the purity and forgiveness of God. We're told that in one of Jesus, in fact, Jesus' first miracles at the wedding at Cana where Jesus turns water into wine, which I love that the first miracle of Jesus is Jesus going to a party, engaging with people at the party, and turning water into wine at the goading of his mother. I mean, there's so many wonderful elements in this story going on, if, if any of you, I mean, I'm sure all of us can relate to some level with that. But he turns water into wine, and the, and the water that he turns into wine was actually in these storage containers used uh, for these ritual washings before prayers uh, by the Jewish men. And so it's interesting that he turns water used for holiness markers into wine for the party for guests who were already had too much wine. Think about how absolutely massively subversive this is. Jesus messes with this idea of ritual purity and then ultimately for Christians, we, uh, Jesus, I should say, well, before I say that, Jesus gets baptized by John the Baptist. John sees him coming, and John is a prophet out in the wilderness, sort of like on the fringes of religious society, but, but God raises up people to declare what he's going to do ahead of time. So he raises up John, and Jesus comes, and when John sees Jesus approaching, he says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins. I mean, think about this. And so he sees this one coming, and John, the Holy Spirit, speaks to to John and John, you know, just declares the one that is coming. And as Jesus comes, he says, comes to be baptized. Jesus, the sinless one, comes to be baptized. And John says, No, 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 I can't baptize you. You need to baptize me. He says, No, no, you baptize me. And so John baptizes him as well. And Jesus not only initiates this idea of this uh, being dunked in water to speak about repentance and reorientation, life change towards a new way of living. He then institutes it for the church or for all who will follow him. Jesus, when we are baptized, we learn that this is not simply uh, something we have to do over and over again, like the, the ritual cleansings within certain forms of Judaism or Islam, but Jesus institutes baptism as a once and for all, one-time act, and that it's something that we choose to do as an adult that points to what has, or as a believer, not even an adult, just old enough to be able to know, but it points to what has already happened in us internally and invisibly and spiritually when we say yes to following Jesus. We are commanded then to be baptized as an act of realignment and an act of subversion. And the interesting thing about baptism, uh, it's sort of like a, a wedding ring. Baptism doesn't make these things true as it were, but it declares our faith in the reality that's already happened and reminds us that we are joined with Jesus in loving relationship. 
And so Jesus leaves behind this sign, this symbol, as an action. Baptism is symbolized also by the freedom to choose to enter into the new covenant. We're told also, Paul writes about this in Romans 6, uh, verses 1 through 14, and there's other places in the New Testament that speak of this, this physical act of baptism that it replaced for Judaism the sign of circum- circumcision that all males received very early on as infants as a marker being in the covenant community. But the difference with baptism then is that it's subversive in another way. Not only does it deal with the idea of holiness and this going through these sort of patterns, but it also deals with this idea of circumcision as the sign of being in the people of God. So instead of circumcision, baptism replaces that. Circumcision is done on a child that has no choice in the matter. Baptism, and, and also circumcised into the ancient community of Israel, Baptism is Jesus' family of choice that as a believer then you choose to engage with and receive. It is not forced on you. That's why we practice believer's baptism, one of several reasons, is that it is a different kind of sign. Instead of it being something where you're forced into community, it's rather you are now Jesus, part of Jesus is part of the family of choice that you enter into, and then you are baptized as a believer. So he breaks another thing within the religious context. It's not automatic. Or the radical reformer said, God has no grandchildren. You must choose to engage with the truth and the encounter of Jesus, and then you follow the Lord in obedience in baptism. Baptism also is an invitation to all people everywhere. In fact, Jesus in Matthew 28 says this, go teaching the way of me, the way of Jesus, and he says, baptize people in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, all nations, all people, whereas circumcision was very much an ethnocentric marker of community within ancient Israel. This is now flipping that on its head and saying the actual mission of God is to expand and save all people everywhere. And so baptism is this first marker that he gives. It's that sign that we've died to an old life. We have been cleansed from sin by Jesus' action once and for all, and we keep appropriating his grace throughout our lives so we don't get baptized again and again and again. We are reminded when we think of baptism of what Christ has done, that he paid it all, he did it all, and God has accepted us fully in Christ. We are reborn with a new identity and a new family in baptism. Well, I could say a little more about this. I should at least address for a half a second the idea of infant baptism. We are in believers' church traditions and we don't practice infant baptism. Um, Now, in some ways, infant baptism is more in line with Old Covenant circumcision than with New Covenant baptism. The practice is, in some ways, what infant baptism symbolizes is more in line with what Jesus came to fulfill versus what Jesus is doing now. And so we don't practice that. We don't see the pattern as, in the New Testament, you do have to stretch a bit to see the jailers, uh, Philip, the jailer's household being baptized in Acts to assume that maybe there were infants in that household. But there's no direct commands of Scripture saying this. And so we do not practice infant baptism in our church. We practice what we say is believer's baptism. Um, We do parent-child dedications, which is a challenge to parents to raise their child in the ways of the Lord, but ultimately that's not about the child being forced into covenant or the baby being forced into covenant. But what about children? Can we baptize children? I think there's good evidence to say that when someone can articulate a real faith in Christ, even if it's child faith, that they can be baptized and they should be baptized. We've practiced, I've personally practiced child baptism. Once the child is old enough to articulate a level of faith, say, why is that? 
Well, because Jesus makes it really clear as children are coming to him and enjoying being in his presence, not to shoo them away, not to tell them to be silent, not to tell them to go away. And elsewhere, Jesus tells us that if we want to enter the kingdom of heaven, we need to become childlike in some things in how we think and act. And so I think there's enough of an emphasis there in scripture that says if that child has received Christ, has been nurtured in faith, and is ready to be baptized and can articulate a level of faith at their level that I would say, go for it. Uh, but again, each parent, each child really needs to wrestle with that as well. Is the, children, is the child competent? Uh, but let's never downplay child faith because the world's baptizing us into all kinds of stuff all the time. Why on earth would we give up the kingdom of God grace of, of being able to baptize people in this wonderful way in the name of Jesus? Okay, well, enough with baptism. Let me move to the second one here uh, before I run out of time. The second and third one, we'll spend a little less time on the second one, a little more time on the third one. So the first one is baptism, this inheritance marker. The second thing as a Christian that Christians have practiced and not have practiced extensively. In fact, let me tell you a story. Uh, I would call this the forgotten one, is, is this practice of foot washing. Jesus, on the night before his crucifixion, uh, John chapter 13, actually, the story of this is there. The disciples are eating, he's modifying a Passover meal, and he's offering that to, and he says to them, I want to, I'm going to wash your feet. And so Jesus washes his disciples' feet. As an adult, or as a person who became a Christian in the church, and in the church I grew up in, we never practiced foot washing at all. In fact, the closest we got was a symbolic uh, dusting off with a towel of someone's shoes in a sermon illustration one time. And I remember that because it stuck, sticks out. It was so unique of just even getting that far where uh, the pastor knelt down and dusted the, the dust off of someone's shoes and saying, this is part of what foot washing, uh, uh, this is one way to illustrate foot washing. Now, foot washing, let's talk a little bit about this one. And all of you are having probably a gross-out factor right now. That's all right. Let's just go with it. Uh, because that actually rolls really well into why in the ancient Near Eastern world foot washing was a thing. So on the night before the crucifixion, the criminal execution of Jesus, Jesus, who is their leader and their Lord, acted like the absolute lowest servant in the place in doing the act of washing his disciples' feet, his followers' feet. Foot washing in the ancient Near Eastern world was a courtesy to house guests. And normally, you, they would wear sandals and they would be traveling, and so their feet would stink and have uh, dust and dirt and road grime and whatever else they might have stepped on on the road on the way to your house. And so if you had a slave or a servant, they would do the foot washing. No one in the household proper would do this act. Um, otherwise, if there was no slave or lower class person who was able or to do that, you would wash your own feet, which, of course, that's what we do today, right? I mean, nobody's washing your feet when you're taking a shower in the morning. You're washing your own feet. And if a family member, if a family member did it, it would be a woman because women were not as important as men in the patriarchal cultures of the time, and so it would be a woman. But it would not ever be a member of prominence in the house. It would not be the head of the household. It would not be the, the padre familias. It would not be the head. It would be someone else. So when Jesus washes feet, and he institutes this in John chapter 13, he breaks down class barriers, he breaks down honor-shame barriers, he breaks down men, women, gender norms and roles, and he models unconditional, humble, servant love before he's about to be crucified as a criminal. Not only that, and I love how Bruxy emphasizes this in his book, not only does he do that, 
he washes the feet of Judas as well. Knowing that Judas is about to betray him, he does this lowly act of servanthood to the disciple who is about to sell him out to the cross, to the Romans, to the religious leadership. He knows that the disciples will abandon him, that in a few short hours, all of his followers are about to become unfollowers. He's about to be unfriended and unfollowed because of the, the disappointment of seeing him die on the cross. And he still washes their feet. How many of you would do a radically act of hospitality or service to someone that you know is about to stab you in the back and desert you at your darkest hour? This is what Jesus does. He was loving to them all to the very end. And this had to mess with their minds, again, for the master teacher to do this, to act as their servants. It would have reversed so many role expectations. In fact, Peter freaks out in the passage, John 13, verses 13 through 15. He says, no, 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 you can't wash my feet. There is no way I'm going to let you wash my feet. And Jesus says, back off, Peter. I need to wash your feet. If I don't do this, you have no part of me. That's how strongly Jesus wanted them to get this message and us to get the message too and the power of the symbol of foot washing. And he said, and then Peter overreacts again and says, well, don't just wash my feet. Wash all of me. And Jesus is like, chill out, Peter. It's a symbol. It's a sign. I'll just do your feet and you will be fine. That's a little bit of a base paraphrase, but you can go read it later. In the town that I spent many years of ministry in, in the States, one of the Christian universities there, when their graduates graduated, and I can't remember if it was in all programs or just some of the social services programs, but when they graduated, they didn't just give them a diploma, they didn't just get a cap and gown, but they also got a basin and a towel, symbols of foot washing, a basin for water and a towel. To remind them is as you've reached this apex of getting your graduate or undergraduate degree, you go out in the name of Christ, not simply to lead, but you are a servant leader. And so in our church, we don't practice foot washing, but maybe we should consider it in the future once COVID and Dr. Bonnie all bless it and the powers that be. But this is a powerful symbol of our faith that Jesus instituted, and it's often neglected. Most churches just think about it symbolically. Any act of service you do, and that's true, that's wonderful to preach, and it's true. But the actual physical act of washing someone else's feet is also powerful. And I didn't experience this until I was pastoring in a Mennonite congregation in Florida, Bayshore, and they practiced this. And I had been in full-time ministry at that point, I don't know, 18, 19 years, and I had never, ever experienced that. And as a pastor, the lead pastor of this church, which was many hundreds of people, there was no way I was going to get out of foot washing. So on Monday, Thursday, they practiced this like Jesus did with his disciples. And believe it or not, this church had closets full of plastic basins uh, and, and towels that were bleached. And, and they did this. And of course, they did it like they had little bleach or something in the water as well. And so men would go with the men to do this, one to another, and the women with the women. So, you know, we're Mennonites, so you've got to keep that all like that, but whatever. Um, and uh, they were Mennonites. And so, yeah, they, we experienced this foot washing. And let me tell you, there's something humbling and powerful and disturbing <laughs> and all of it in doing that act. We've seen it demonstrated sometimes in communities when we practice healing from woundedness. Occasionally, evangelicals and other Christians will bring out foot washing as a powerful act because it is a powerful act to kneel down. I guess I'll go off camera if I do this. Someone else takes their shoes off and you pour water over their feet 
and you take the towel and you dry them. In the name of Christ, reflecting on that servant leadership. Either way, Jesus' lesson, Bruxy puts it this way on 195, either way, Jesus' lesson of putting power and pride aside to love others in practical ways lives on, foot washing. The third and final one we, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on because we do this one regularly. It's called communion or the holy meal. Say it with me, the holy meal? The holy meal. <laughs> Say it like you mean it, the holy meal. <laughs> I'm using that language from a Canadian theologian who uh, is, I think he's like the dean now or the president of Ambrose University, which is Christian Missionary Alliance and Nazarene Church uh, somewhere in Alberta, uh, the Christian Texas of Canada. And um, he, he writes in this book about the practices of the Holy Meal. And I encourage you, if you want to go deeper with it, to get his book and to read it. I read it some years ago, a great little work on that. It's a very short book, but very, very uh, meaningful and, and dense with lots of theology around practicing the holy meal in the church. Jesus brought a new meaning on the night he was betrayed to the ritual of the Passover meal, which we call a Seder. And um, today as Christians, we celebrate this communion. Christians, almost all Christians everywhere celebrate communion or the Eucharist, the Eucharist, which is based on, um, I think it's the Greek word going into Latin, but the idea of thanksgiving, this idea of giving thanks as Jesus said on the night in which he was betrayed, he gives thanks, he breaks bread. After they have, and while they're having this bigger feast, Jesus takes this aspect of Passover and he, and he does something subversive with it by giving us this meal. So hours before Jesus' arrest and death on the cross, he explains the meaning of what was about to occur through his death on the cross by taking the symbolism of the Jewish Passover meal and bringing it in with new meaning and memory. Jesus is making a deliberate move from the initial meaning and drama of Passover and now bringing his story into it, the, the story of Israel. He brings the story of Passover of, of, the, uh, of the Israelites being called out of Egypt by God's mighty acts of wonders and Moses being the greatest prophet of Israel and God calling them in that, that final plague on Egypt that if they would not let the people go, that God was going to take the firstborn, or the, not even God, but the angel of death. God was going to withdraw and let the angel of death go after the firstborn of the Egyptians and of the animals, but said this, if if you slaughter a lamb and then you cook it and then you have this meal and you put the lamb's blood over your doorpost, when the angel of death comes, he will pass over that house and no plague will enter. And that's ultimately this horrific sign that causes the Pharaoh to say, finally, get out of my country. You are freed from your slavery. And so this becomes this founding important. Even today, Jews celebrate Passover and Christians sometimes try to do a Christianized version of this, but in some ways, what Jesus does in communion takes it and gives it a different meaning and a different direction, saying that the ultimate Passover lamb is what he is about to do on the cross in the next few uh, hours to come. And so Christianity is both continuous and discontinuous from Judaism. It flows from and in a new way from Judaism. So the Passover meal, the Seder, is a symbolic celebration of freedom and liberation from bondage, the exodus, the use of the lamb's blood and the death of the firstborn. This was the story of Israel, and the elements were part of the Passover meal. But Jesus takes it further. N.T. Wright says this, but Jesus' meal fused this great story of deliverance from the bondage and slavery of Egypt with another one, the story of himself, his own life, and his coming death. Again, how do you say you're God without saying you're God? You say you are the ultimate Passover meal. <laughs> and somehow it involved him in the God-given drama, not as a spectator 
or as one participant among many, but, as among, but he is the central character. That takes, well, to borrow from the Yiddish chutzpah, it's a scandalous and sacrilegious, another way of saying, I am God, without saying, I am God. And he establishes this covenant with all who will follow the way of peace and the new humanity. His covenant is based in food. So when Jesus leaves, I love this, he leaves us uh, a, a washing, a symbol, a symbolic death and resurrection through water baptism, which we do once as a believer. He leaves us a sign of foot washing and servant humility, and then he leaves us a meal. Christianity is embodied. True Christianity is not just about your head. It's about what you do and enact. The core text we go to in communion, which we will do next Sunday, is 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And Paul is writing probably in the 50s AD, 17 to 20 years after Jesus' ascension, death and resurrection into heaven. And the Passover Seder is turned into a love feast. It's an exodus for everyone into freedom of the kingdom of love. And Jesus says these words. He says, when you celebrate this and when you, and he said, we are to do this. We are to celebrate communion regularly. It is a sign and a symbol in my blood. And Jesus declares words that would have been subversive to say, drink this, uh, this wine as if it were my blood. Two pious Jews of the first century would have been an outrageous sacrilegious claim, irreligious claim, because it was forbidden in the law to drink blood. You were to drain the blood from the animal and cook it well. And for him to actually say, drink my blood, this is my blood, the cup of the new covenant, is to just mess with all kinds of religiosity up one side and down the other. And he says that, and when some of the disciples hear this kind of language early on, they leave Jesus. They can't follow him because it's just too shocking. But he says, this cup, Luke twenty two twenty, this cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood before he's about to die on the cross and shed his blood, literally. Now, this idea of communion is a re-remembering. Jesus' sacrifice is ultimate. It makes all other sacrifices of this kind of religion unnecessary. Jesus never calls Christians to kill in his name. He dies for all. This symbolic meal, Jesus points us to himself as the way to God. I like how Bruxy puts it. He says, we do not take part in the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper or communion or mass to receive God's grace and forgiveness through a ritual, but to remind ourselves not to receive grace, but to remind ourselves that God's grace and forgiveness are already ours. And Jesus messes with them and he calls us again to celebrate communion. These are the three signs and symbols of the kingdom of God. And yes, the Holy Spirit is present when we gather and we magnify God's Spirit's present when we gather together and when we do things like worship and communion and foot washing and baptism. But we are called to remember this meal, this table is extended to all, to any who will receive Jesus. They are welcome at the table of the Lord. I like how John Wesley talked about this idea of Christians who have fallen away from the faith being welcome at the table of the Lord, practicing an open communion table that it might reconvert them, bring them back into the faith as they tangibly experience this love and are reminded of what Christ has done. This morning, I just want to leave you with uh, a reminder of these three things, that we practice these things literally or figuratively in the case of foot washing, and maybe we should consider every once in a while trying some foot washing. 
See how that goes over? Ha-ha. <laughs> Second item on the next membership meeting agenda. Okay. But we are invited to drink the wine of the new covenant. In participating in that, we're rejecting systems of salvation in favor of trusting in Jesus' non-religious way. And when communion and Eucharist become something where we forget that this grace we've already received, and when we put the power of communion back into the hands of priests and patriarchs and hierarchy, we're missing one of the major aspects of communion. Do this in remembrance of me. Anyone can lead and celebrate in communion because Jesus is the host at the table. The same thing with baptism. It doesn't need to be a pastor. It can be a home church member. It can be a fellow believer. Anyone who follows Christ can baptize another, ideally in community, because that's what baptism is about, being baptized into the community that the church does baptism. But there's not power in the water, as it were, and there's not power in the priesthood. It's rather in the priesthood of everyone, all believers. And these symbols are subversive through baptism, I like this summary. Through baptism, we declare our once and for all forgiveness and cleansing and acceptance by God. Through foot washing, we encounter Jesus as we practically serve people in need. And through the Lord's Supper, we regularly invite Christ's irreligious love and life to enter us and refresh us, that we remember the covenant. We're reminded of these things. These are gifts. These are the inheritance. These are the things that he's left behind until he comes again to restore God's true harmony and order to all things. They are lived bodily prayers and they point us to Jesus and that we are in a body and the things we do shape us and form us. I want to end this morning with a prayer. Um, this, Andreas uh, is also preaching this morning at our sister congregation, our mother church as well. Uh, and so I'm, I'm ending it, and we're slowly changing our Sunday morning uh, structure just a little bit here as we continue to be on Zoom, or not Zoom, continue to be live streaming as well. But I just want to pray for you today that you would enter into these things, you would experience them as you have, if you have chosen to follow Christ. These things don't save you. The grace has already been poured out. If you've received, I encourage you to follow the Lord in obedience with baptism. And we're going to try to figure out how to plan baptism here during COVID times in the next couple months as well. I want to encourage you in communion that communion is a thing we repeat. It's a reminder. It's an ordinance. It's a symbol. It's something we do again and again that points us to the table of the Lord and the grace of Christ and, the, and his blood shed for us and to create a family and a table where all are welcome and made kin in Christ. I want to remind you also again this practice of foot washing, this call to demonstrate humility and love. Through humility and service, we demonstrate our love. So, Lord, thank you today for the men, women, boys, and girls, youth that have joined us. And as we've been on this journey of peace with God and we pause to enter into a new section in the next months, help us to be formed deeply by what's been drawing us. And if we've said yes to you, may we use these symbols, these signs, these subversive symbols to remind us that they are not to be encrusted with religiosity, but they in fact have the reverse effect. This sort of, in our context, almost, almost humorous idea of going in water and coming out. This idea of foot washing, which across all times and all generations and all cultures everywhere has an ick factor. How irreligious, but how powerful. And what it does and what it points to. 
And then the idea of your table of eating together and taking time in that eating and the love feasts as the early church did to call on and remember that you are the ultimate bread of life that satisfies the hungers of every heart. You are the ultimate wine that brings joy and gladness, your sacrifice and your resurrection. So as we leave today, if someone needs to take their next steps, Lord, help them to do that. And if that's you today, please feel free to contact us. All the contact information's on the website. You can email us, you can text us, you can even write a letter if you want. But I want to ask you to wrestle with your next step in your relationship with these things. Baptism, communion, foot washing. Thank you for joining us today. We're going to have a, a foyer conversation here in about uh, 11.15 our time, 11.15 I'll be on, and uh, if you want to say hi or you have questions, encourage you to do that too. I've been trying to remember if you have tech questions to text in, that text number is available as well because we do want to answer one or two questions at the close of our services uh, before we go into the Zoom chat. So thank you for joining us today. I pray that the Lord would be with you and that uh, you experience his grace and peace this week as you serve others. Go in peace. Amen.